Remember the first time you saw a race car on an open trailer? Maybe it was full of dirt, tire marks, and other battle scars. You wondered where it had been, and more importantly, where it was going next. Every open trailer has a story, and we're here to tell it. Welcome to the Open Trailer Podcast. On today's edition of the Open Trailer Podcast, it's stage number two of my visit with the Alexander family. We pick up in the late 80s where Bob's career starts to wind down and and why that happened. The third generation of the family, Wyatt, his driving becomes the family's focal point. Wyatt moves south, makes some famous friends, and then decides to move back to Maine. And his reasoning for moving back to this state speaks a ton to his character. Can't wait for him to roll that story out to you. And while every guest on the Open Trailer Podcast shares a love of racing, all four of us in this particular conversation share a love of country music, specifically what is considered classic country music. And yes, I'm using air quotations. You can't see. It's audio, but just use your imagination. Your support of the Open Trailer Podcast directly benefits Maine Vintage Race Car Association. Check us out at mainvintagerace.org. That's mainvintagerace.org. You can become a member for less than $2 a month. There are different tiers to membership. The best way to help this podcast grow is to rate and review. It's the algorithms. We don't make them. We just have to follow them. So five stars, reviews. They really make the world go around and make this thing sing. So let's dig in. Stage number two of the Alexander family on the Open Trailer Podcast. Enjoy. It's the late 80s, and Bob, your career winds down a little bit. At what point did you say, I think I've had enough? It just stopped being fun. I mean, we race to have fun and hopefully make some money why didn't you race for championships uh it was all about getting that checkered flag going to a banquet and standing up and getting a trophy just didn't have much value to me it just Mm. it was all about the thrill of victory that that adrenaline rush of instant gratification exactly which i think it's interesting that you bring up the fact that you wouldn't want to really standing at a banquet really doesn't appeal to you yet when you're named to the Maine Motorsports Hall of Fame in 2014, what was that? What was that announcement like? That phone call? It was overwhelming. Uh, it was unexpected. Uh, my son Brett and and some other people had put that together with, uh, without my knowledge. Mm. And when I got the call from Andy Kuzak uh, mm. saying that I was one of the inductees, so I, I was just uh, blown away. Yeah. Uh, what was that night like? Uh, awesome! One of the best nights of my life to to know to get that recognition the, that uh, this is why we did what we did. And I hadn't kept track of wins or anything like that, and and I got credit for improving racing due to the technical innovations that I had made. Mm. That it they say all boats rise on the same tide. So when one car is a little bit faster, everyone else has to catch up, and that's 
probably the biggest part of my success, I think, wasn't so much I was a better driver, is the fact that I could I could build a better car. So uh, a gentleman came along who just had all kinds of money and decided he wanted a race team. And uh, so uh, he looked at the car and he said, I need a car for my son. I want, he wants to get into racing. I said, well, yeah, this is for sale. And told him all about it and the price and everything. Well, how about the truck and trailer? Can you do a whole package? Oh, yes, I so can. So <laughs> I said, well, yeah, let me, I, let me figure out how much that would be. And I told him, he said, well, can you take a check tomorrow? And I told him that would be fine. Did this happen on Earth? This did. Okay. Right here in Ellsworth, Maine. Sure. Wow. And uh, so then he asked if I could, it would, was opening day at Unity uh, the next weekend. He says, could you get the car ready to race at Unity next weekend? I said, love to. No problem. I'll get it ready. And got the car ready and all set up and went to Unity and went out, warmed it up. And his son got in the car and made about five laps and come in just white. And he says, I, <laughs> I can't drive this car. He says, it's too fast. And so he asked me to race it, which I said, told him I'd be happy to race it for him. Just one, I think they were out, they pulled me back in. Yeah, so uh, got in the car, I think I won the heat race and went out in the feature and about the fifth lap there was a pile up in turn one and I went right into it wide open and shortened the car up about two feet Uh uh, thinking that he's going to be all upset and we get to the pits, and he said, wow, that car goes great. That's just what I wanted to see. Uh, thank you. See you later. And uh, I'll take it down to Stan Reserve and get a new clip put on it. And uh, away he went. Is, is that team still involved with racing today? Is that person still? Uh, no. No? No. So what do you do when you get out? Because we're lifers, right? You still have the itch. How do you, how do you, you well, know, scratch that itch? I hooked up with Lloyd Gilly, Gilly's Truck Caps, and crewed for him. We'd work on the race car and go racing bush north Mm. and uh, so i was his crew chief for a period of time and uh, we traveled all over and lived the lived the good life went first class and Mm. didn't win many races but we went out and had fun sometimes that's about it though yep um and and so brett your driving career um you know once you were thrown out of 95 you went to unity (laughs) that's where we left off with you but it doesn't really go further does it no over two seasons it was a a very small amount of races but Mm. So that's the big myth, I think, in the whole racing, Alexander racing um, sphere, is that there are three distinct generations of drivers. But you as a young dad and, uh, you know, with a, with a racing pedigree like your father, uh, you have Wyatt in 1990. 99. And uh, very soon, uh, there's a third generation who's who's driving go-karts. Tell me how that started. Yeah, so originally we thought, we would not be into go-karts, but maybe motocross. A family friend was racing. The day we went to watch him race, he broke his leg. So Wyatt's mother realized then perhaps motocross would not be the the road we'd go down. The next weekend after that, we went to a go-kart race. Where Where was the go-kart So that race? was St. Albans, uh, Thundering Valley Raceway. Mm-hmm. So that was on a Saturday night. Uh, by Sunday evening, we owned a go-kart. Yeah. And we were back in the racing. Who did you buy a go-kart from? So actually, uh, ironically, it was one of Wyatt's schoolmates. Uh, their family had raced go-karts a little bit. Mm. Um, the Mahons here in Ellsworth. And they were getting out of it. So how much were you able to use your racing proudness or your racing knowledge and move it into go-karts? Yeah, it was, it was huge. It just seems like that's something you could engineer. 
Yes, I mean, the, the setup on a go-kart is quite a bit different than what you do on a late model or a pro stock, but uh, taking care of the tires and chassis alignment and weight placement, uh, things like that, and, mm. and all the little tricks you learn to make a go-kart go fast uh, would apply. So, uh, Let's get Wyatt on here. What is your first racing memory? So my first racing memory is uh, in the parking lot of Hancock County Technical Center, which is the Volk School here in town. Grandpa was a teacher there at the time. And not long after we got the go-kart, they put some cones up in the back parking lot there. Hmm. So we have Snap-on, we have engineering, and I didn't realize you were a school teacher. I did. I I taught in the vocational center for... uh about nine years as an automotive and diesel. Pretty much done everything. <laughs> yeah. He's been retired four or five times. Yeah. And he he deserves an engineering degree, like, by default. But Like I, and yeah. like an honorary? An one? honorary, thank you. Yeah, yeah. honorary engineering degrees. Yeah. Yeah. So you get into racing and immediately, I mean, you're hooked. What did you know about your family or are you too young to know anything? Too, you just know that young. you did it. At what point do you realize that Gramps is a, well, he's, he's won a hundred races, your dad fails tech, and uh, that's about it yeah yeah uh no concept of one like nothing's really sentimental at that point when do you start to realize that you're in a major racing family when my dad wouldn't let me keep the 24 that was on the go-kart because i was a huge (laughs) jeff gordon fan and it had to be a 96 and i was like i don't really understand why that's a problem how long did you run the uh how long did you run the 24 none like it was zero it wasn't gonna happen you wanted it to be a 24 and it didn't happen what kind of young man was was Wyatt when he was uh, before? He was very athletic, but he was not real aggressive. That that was a big challenge. Because the racing adage is that I can back you down, but I can't build you up. You know, I can I can slow you down, but it's harder to speed you up. It, very hard. So how did that work? It was. It took us a few years. You know. So Wyatt, what was it that you were um, most apprehensive of when you, if you can remember those days? The the same thing I am to this day, which is taking care of my equipment. My whole life, I've never been scared in a race car, hurting myself. Mm-hmm. Like you know, that's just never even been a factor. But since I was a little kid, no matter what I was my possession, like I like to take care of my stuff. So that's pretty hard mm-hmm. um, when you're. You need to be aggressive. I didn't want to break it. I mean, that's the the basics of it. I'm a little bit OCD when it comes to that stuff. I'm accused of certain things like that. So it's uh, it's hard for me to be hard on my equipment. He's a lot OCD. He owns, still to this day, every single toy, matchbox... So when he says he took care of his stuff, he saved everything he's ever had. I want to put a big hose on the whole OCD fire because as someone who's accused of OCD or someone who walks on, I don't do it, but other people say, you know, people like to walk around and say, ah, I'm OCD. I'm like, no, there's an order of things and some people do them and others don't. Right. The people that do them are right. not obsessive compulsive. Right. That's they the just right way. do the order of right. things. It's just the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. I mean, that's how, whether it was a four wheeler, I mean, you know, it things happen you know I've, I've definitely broken my share of stuff broken a share of my dad's stuff but mm. when it comes down to it like that was i didn't i mean yeah I've, i said it you know mm. i just everything i own everything i have owned and will own i just want to be immaculate so you guys don't stay local you tore pretty much right away for world carding yeah that was uh so you know dad talking about the timidness that was what at least started the transition was wasn't until we started touring where it was kind of trial by fire more of a sense where if you weren't aggressive and didn't start picking those things up pretty quickly it just 
you weren't even going to contend at all. When was the first time that you felt you were over your head? So my first ever national event, we went to North Carolina. Equipment-wise, I mean, we had nice equipment, but the chassis we were on, Ultramax Racing chassis, shortly found out nobody ran those at the national level mm. and because that manufacturer was really focused on dirt and we were racing asphalt and where we came from everybody ran an ultramax chassis and anyways i a qualifying rained out mm-hmm. there was probably uh, 20 or a little under carts and i drew the pole for my first national and Ooh. uh was not very competitive and then i'm going to lap down and really struggled and that was a pretty big wake-up call and then uh we changed chassis went to my second national and almost won um what was the change so we went to a we we switched to a a rage cart uh rage chassis so it was all equipment it wasn't it wasn't mental at all or uh maybe someone else could speak to that more than me but i think the equipment helped that was probably part of the confidence gramp has fed me in days of thunderline which meant nothing to me at the time but he told me that the you know i i'd been struggling and he told me that the tires were match perfect stagger special and yes I, and I, I won i won off turn so, four so, yeah the confidence yeah. deal yeah. was big so i think uh paired with the manufacturer change definitely being more competitive brett what was it like to watch uh that development in a pretty short amount of time it was very rewarding. Were you surprised, honestly? Yeah, yeah. you know, yes and no. We we had the right pieces. So how quickly do you get out of go-karts, and what do you do next, Legends? When I turned 12, we started looking into Legends cars, and then I ran both carts and Legends cars um, that that season in 2012 and um, won a national championship, won a grand national championship race that year and a couple other touring championships. I've heard from many different competitors that there's a there's an easy crossover like if you do well in go-karts you'll probably do well in legends you find that to be true um i would say so i the sensation of speed in a go-kart isn't is is high Hmm. because you're so low to the ground you know you're going 80 miles an hour you feel like you're going 100 miles an hour similar to a legends car you don't spend a lot of time in legends you're up into a full-bodied race car pretty quick yeah i uh so i ran legends cars for two full seasons um i guess technically across three years that year in 2012 i ran a handful of races at unity and bangor and, and new hampshire motor speedway um and then ran two full seasons 2013 and 14 and then similar to my transition from go-karts in 2014 we i made my first super late model start at 14 so you're 14 years old are is all you're thinking about racing or do you have other interests like what do you like to do when you're not thinking about racing uh so i did play sports i played soccer from time i was three years old all the way through high school so um i I did play sports off and on aside from that but racing always came first so i gave up a lot of stuff to race and that was you know whether it was athletically or socially um that was with intent and with no regrets like racing was 100 percent. that was my uh that was my next question because a lot of a lot of people go through that at that age and fast forward you're 21 now in your early 20s do you regret uh, not partaking in some of those things seven, eight no, years ago. Not at all, because like you and I off, you know, off mic or, or whatnot, we talked about earlier, there's every, pretty much everything I've done in my life has been probably in one way affected by racing. Mm. And since I started racing from such a young age, and it's been what I've cared about so much, I would regret more if I didn't do all that, mm. because 
at the end of the day, if I never become a cup driver, which we all know that's, you know, <laughs> it's quite a dream, but I, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night if I knew that I hadn't given it a hundred percent. Motivations change as you become an adult, certainly, mm. but. Yeah. I always thought that regrets are, if it didn't negatively affect someone else, the only regrets that I have in life are when other people were affected. Anything that I've done has been just the path that you choose. You know, that's your experience. One thing in racing that uh, today more than ever is a very short window Hmm. of opportunity that if you're not in the national limelight by the time you're 15 or 16, the odds of you moving up a step or to the the pinnacle, if it is NASCAR or whatever, uh, is your odds are greatly reduced. Dick Trickle won Rookie of the Year at 48 years old. Yeah, well, that's not going to happen. That, though? that yeah. was 1990 sometime. Yeah. Uh, today, there are people who make a very good living racing super late models. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bubba Pollard. Things that make me proud is the fact that when we won the Valvoline uh, sponsorship deal, which we haven't touched on yet, mm-hmm. we were able to go down south when Wyatt was living in Charlotte and compete with those guys and we were every bit as good as they were. I want to talk about that night at Wiscasset where you won your first big full-bodied race. What was what was that race? What was it like? Yeah, I've always been more starstruck by the guys at the local level. So whether it was, you know, watching Eddie McDonald win the Oxford 250 or Andy Saunders or Jeff Burgess, we were talking about Unity. I, you know, sitting in the stands at Unity watching Jeff Burgess in the X car. Like, those guys were more my heroes. Mm. Um, so I, I saw it was, it was it's been more special for me to have success in a super late model because I'm, those are the guys that were really my hero. So to, to win the boss hog, um, and for those who might be listening out of the state of Maine, that's named after a Dave St. Clair, who's a fellow, uh, Maine Motorsports hall of famer owned Wiscasset, ran Wiscasset, a legendary figure in this state. So, I mean, that's a, that's a big one. Yeah, it was, it was a big deal. And just to win my first super late model race there, it was Cassett. Um, I'd been to Wiscasset a lot, watched John Fippen race there. Um, so it was really neat because I get I guess too Wiscasset was the first place I really remember watching Pro Stocks and watching mm-hmm. Super Late Models and, and watching John Fippen race. So um, I think that was a big part of it for me that made it special. Who was it that you passed where you were like, man, I'm 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 here. You know, you talk about local heroes. Uh, I have a picture on my phone, and it was special to me then, and it's always going to be special to me. It's a shot of me coming down the backstretch, and Mike Rose on my inside, Ben Rose behind me, Joey Dwyer and DJ Shaw, Johnny Clark. Like, we were all racing together. So this Valvoline sponsorship, um, you really got a chance to move the needle with some of the, the big heavy hitters and, and big-time NASCAR. Tell, tell us how that whole thing came about. Um, they were trying to take a grassroots racer and – you know, bring them along, I guess, uh, to go up the ranks. So it was an online contest. You had to submit an online uh, autobiography, a little blip about yourself, some of your stats. And that was pretty much it. Um, then it went to, oh, you, you did have to get votes at that point. As long as you got like 50 votes from grandma and grandpa and friends. Hey, I voted. Thank you, Andy. Yeah. Um, they got you, that got you into the round to be picked by um, the board. Right. Um, and so, who's on this board? I, it was it was relatively small group, but I know Ray Evernham, uh, Rick Hendrick, um, some executives at Valvoline. Um, 
Mark Martin was involved. Um, it was was Junior involved on this. I don't know if Dale Junior was at that point, mm-hmm. um, but it was. And then you know a lot of marketing people from Valvoline, of course, they're handling you know who yeah. you know. But still, don't take away life. from the names that you know a lot of racers know and respect. Certainly. So you're at what 15, 16? I was uh, I was eighteen at this 18. point. I had mo- already moved to North Carolina, okay. um, and I was actually dad was the one that egged me on that I should apply for it. And what were you doing in North Carolina? A lot of people when they move from Maine to North Carolina, they go straight for racing. What did you go for? Yeah, so I was I was going for college. Um, I moved moved there with the intent of going to the University of North Carolina at Charlotte for mechanical engineering major, which I did. Mechanical engineering. Yep. Right in the family. That's yep. Yeah. Yep, that's right. So going for engineering there and uh and then working part working pretty much three jobs part time. Where did um, you work? So I worked for initially for Kyle Beatty, uh Kyle Beatty Racing. They build uh that's who helped us with our Legends car stuff. Uh then I worked for at the same time worked for Dean Clattenburg. Have um, you ever had a regular job? Uh, nope, nope. Have any of you ever had a regular job? Yeah, I, I had a brief career at McDonald's. Yeah, see, yeah. that's Actually, the kind of stuff that I'm looking for, yes, Brett. Some great work ethic. So really, that. what era was this? Was this the? Um, did you ever do a McRib? Right in the middle of McRibs, actually. That was. Tell me what is the secret to a McRib? Like, what is that? Mystery meat. Yeah, it was a frozen mystery meat, and then this package of barbecue how, sauce. How long does it take you to assemble a McRib? Well, I mean, we're talking. Th- over 35 years ago, so I, I mean, probably a, a few seconds. Uh, getting back to the Valvoline thing, you uh, so you advance in this, you know, guys like Mark Martin, uh, Ray Evernham, Rick Hendrick are, are looking at your resume, and they say this guy needs to move on. Uh, like, tell me about those relationships. They narrowed it down to four people, so that was a big deal. Let alone um, there was uh, obviously three others. John McKennedy was one of the four finalists who mm. I'm a fan of as well, and. Um, I, I ended up winning the contest. It went to a pure a pure vote. It was online. Mm. Um, that's when we really started pushing to try to get votes. Um, and I, I, the basics of it, I won the overall vote, um, which was pretty special. And then, yeah, like you said, the relationships that opened a lot of doors. Being in North Carolina in general opened a lot of doors to uh, to meet people. And so, and that was the whole reason I wanted to move there. I know that that's a little bit off topic, but when I was graduating high school and trying to figure out what I was going to do next. I wanted to move to North Carolina. And the biggest reason for that, again, was I didn't want to have regrets. Um, I only applied to two schools out of high school, University of Maine, University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Mm -hmm. And my mentality was, if I go to North Carolina and it doesn't work out, I'll have at least tried it. And and I knew I wasn't going to meet people sitting in a dorm room at the University of Maine. So if I was going to do anything, um, it was going to be down there. Who's the uh, most famous person in your phone? Um, uh, most famous person in my phone, probably Ray Evernham is the most famous person in my phone. Gold star. Yeah, that's, that's gold star. Yes. That's, uh, Sexed that's, up Ray. Yep. Do you guys end up in conversations at all? No, oh. you know, I've only, I've only spoken to him a couple of times mm. total, but, um, that relationship, the extent of it was that when I won the contest, some of the executives from Valvoline, Valvoline is based out of Kentucky. So mm. for different things, whether it was a Hendrick promotion, um, an Alex Bowman deal, um, Ray Evernham, they'd come to North Carolina. And so they'd always get in contact with me and we'd go to dinner. And after one of those dinners, they said, hey, do you want to go over to Ray Evernham's? And I, yeah, I'm, I got nothing. Who okay. says no to that? Yeah. Right? And uh, I had a physics final the next day that I didn't study for because no regrets no regrets no regrets no regrets uh 
yeah, so we went over to Ray Everham's, and it was myself, uh, the motorsports marketing manager from Valvoline, um, another guy, another marketing guy, kind of a handler, a PR guy, and Ray. And it was just the four of us in his shop, and he gave me a tour and showed me Mario Andretti's first IndyCar that's in his museum. And the biggest thing I remember from the, the thing that stands out the most was we walked into this room at Ray's shop, and it's a. Uh, it's this separate room that was all cars he'd been given as a bonus from Rick Hendrick. And he looked at me and he said, you know, if you ever get the opportunity to work for Rick Hendrick, this is why you should do it. And in my head, I was laughing because I was like, this yeah. guy thinks that I would say no to working. For, like, mm-hmm. if Rick Hendrick offered me a job of any kind, I who would say no, right? But he, right. So that was, you know, this is why if Rick ever offers you a job, you know, this car I got for winning the Brickyard with Jeff and this car I got for winning the championship with Jeff and hmm. that was a really unique experience. Why uh, in the middle of all that do you come back to Maine? For a couple reasons. Um, the biggest one being I want to race my super late model and unfortunately right now um, not long after I moved there the Pro All-Star Series South pretty much dissipated um, and the Cars Tour um, down there has backed off their super late model schedule so there's not much uh, racing for the type of cars you see us race at Oxford and Beechridge and Wiscasset Paired with uh, school, um, I you know, being in that environment down there wasn't really proactive for my education. Going all over the place down there to chase racing wasn't really helpful for school. There were night, there were weeks where I was at a racetrack six nights out of the week, and mm. doesn't leave a lot of time for study. Who did you consult before moving back here? Um, a lot of people, um, but most notably uh, Austin Terrio, probably. Um, I talked to Austin a lot about it. Um, of course, Dad and Gramp and others, but I talked to a lot of people down there. Dean Clattenberg, um, who I was working for and have a really good relationship with. Um, Austin and I had lunch over it a couple times. Um, what Andy did, Sice. What did he have to say? Uh, he, he supported it and basically told me, you know, I had to do what I wanted to do. He understood that I probably wasn't on the track to be an Xfinity driver in two years. Um, and so if I wanted, you know, whatever I wanted to do to do that well, I needed to make the decisions that were going to make that happen. And for me, that's race super late model. So he supported it a lot. He understood it. Um, he was one of the ones that encouraged me to go down there and try it and also encouraged me that if it's not working, you need to make a change. North Carolina for racing people is kind of like Disney World. Mm. Um, and a lot of people go there and a lot of people try it and it doesn't work out for everybody. And and for me, I don't think that it's uh, it didn't not work out. It's just I wasn't maximizing what I wanted to maximize. It was super cool, but you can't always do things just because it's exciting and cool. You know, you need results and you need... Um, things to back that up. So for me, that just wasn't the situation. Well, a good engineer knows that. You right. Know? Exactly. So. Yeah, that was that was another element of it. Um, going to school at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, my path, my mindset going there was I wanted to get my engineering degree and become a crew chief or at the NASCAR level. And then there came a lot of, one, I don't know if I want to work in racing 60 hours a week because, you know, I don't want to lose my passion for it. You know, when you're doing something like that, it definitely alters how you feel about it. And also, um, a lot of people advised me and I saw myself that maybe it wasn't a great time to pin your whole career in NASCAR. Um, basically, you know, when you go down that path, it's hard to then alter your course. If, if something happens and you lose your job, you're putting a lot on the line. And at this point in that sport, that's a lot riding on it. I'm going to come back to your most cherished photo as a racer with Mike Rowe, 
Johnny Clark, Ben Rowe, Wyatt Alexander. If you can get a gig of a of a local star who you know makes an impact in the in the place that you live, um, you know I think that's a pretty good gig to get. Yeah, my my friend, I'm really good friends with Joey Coulter, who raced at the truck level and Xfinity level and stuff. And uh, he's from Miami, he's from Florida, uh, moved to North Carolina, went to the same school I did, same passion, same interest. And he, you know, certainly moved up the ranks. But he stopped racing trucks and Xfinity cars because obviously there was a lot of financial burden that came with that, um, finding the funding for that. And, and the way he worded it to me was, I want to be one of the best race car drivers in the world. And I think Scott Bloomquist is a really good race car driver. And so he owns a dirt super late model team, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Some say the same thing about Micro, Bubba Pollard. Mm-hmm. Anybody of the likes at the super late model level, I want to be one of the best race car drivers in the world. And I think Bubba Pollard's a really good race car driver. I don't think there's many people in your generation that, that think that way. But earlier off the mic, we were talking about local stars and, and what draws people to the racetrack and, and what gets people standing up and cheering, you know, full house for your grandfather for winning a race. So you'd won 13 races that year out of 15, but they're still cheering for him. Well, most were, uh, but they cared one way or another. And I think a lot of it comes down to people staying in the same place for a long time and, and building that fan base. And everyone's in the biggest rush. It's not their own. It's not their fault at all. It's just the the way the system is to get to the next level so far that you leave your grassroots kind of behind. So I think coming back to that, you know, no matter if big NASCAR works out for you, you always have a home here in Maine. But I mean, do you plan on racing for as long as you can? Uh, Absolutely. Um, So that was my motivations with school. You know, I want to. Uh, go to school, get my degree, get a good job that can afford this habit. Um, mm. Because I would race tricycles if there was if tricycle racing was popular mm. and and there was a division and that was what we had to race. That's what I would do. Um, I, I'll race for the rest of my life as long as there's something to do. You know, there's uh, there's one photo in here uh, in this this book that I've been looking through where both Wyatt and Bob uh, raced. You guys, so you did get to race each other a couple of times. Uh, Bob, tell me what that was like. Because for Wyatt, you only know what you know, which is probably just a few races, and that's your grandpa racing. And at this point, do you even know what he accomplished? Are you were you aware of this by yeah, this? Yeah, by that point, yeah, racing okay. legends. At that point, I had I was aware. Yep. So you're 12 years old, right, running yep. legends, and then you come out of the seat, or you get back into the seat. Back into the seat, yeah. uh, Mike Humphrey, uh, Cornish, uh, actually bought some of our legends cars. He offered me the use mm-hmm. one of his his cars for a race to race with Wyatt, and, uh, and I was rusty, very rusty uh, as far as, uh, but I think is. They say it's like riding a bicycle once you learn it. But was it? But I had to get acclimated to a Legends car. And I will say this, that anyone that can be competitive up to speed in a Legends car, I have a whole lot of respect for them. Mm. They are the most evil vehicle ever invented to go around a racetrack. Wow. Um, are you still able to carry over the engineering things that you learned or you oh applied? Yeah, big time. More so now with this guy. Like I, I said, to, he needs an honorary engineering re, degree. Relearn uh-huh. uh, because of the gap from when I stopped racing to today. The uh, jump in technology, the the uh, the big change with bump stops and and aerodynamics and all that. So I have 
taken seminars and gone to all everything I get my hands on. You never lose that thirst for knowledge, do you? No. And on a lighthearted note here, so you're all riding in the same vehicle to the racetrack? Right, you Usually. Three, yeah. three generations. Uh, who controls the radio? Uh, me. Okay. So I'm in control of everything. Don't be right. confused. All right. So you are in control. What his, is uh, what his truck and his trailer? So, so is it is it a radio station? Is it a playlist? Is it a CD? What do you guys listen to on the way there? Yeah. So lately, it's been podcasts mm-hmm. because that can kill the time like nothing else. Mm-hmm. But hopefully, coming home, we can time it so we have Country Gold Saturday night <laughs> because yes. that takes me back to yeah. 1982. Coming home from Unity or wherever, you know, yeah. that's what we listen to. So that's pretty. pretty it's cool. weird working in country radio as long as I have to speak to that. To me, classic country is Alabama, early George Strait, Eddie Rabbit, Ronnie Millsap. So when I'm talking about classic country now, Wyatt, what do you think I'm putting in? When I say when I say classic country to you, what what? Alan Jackson. Okay. Uh, no, I'll go. Yeah, I I've, I was raised pretty well on the music side, yeah. and so to tie that all together, like we travel a lot because mm-hmm. we live in Ellsworth, paired with <laughs> traveling a lot to like yeah. the Carolinas. We've right. done that my whole racing career, but uh, that's why I became fond of '80s rock and mm. old older country because Dad controls the radio, and I used to hate that, mm. and now I like it because if it's not a podcast, yes. it's it's '80s rock, so that's all right. And, it's uh so the traveling is a big part for us because we enjoy all that time. I'm surprised you said Alan Jackson because when I'm loading, I mean, I was looking at the latest research and now I'm loading songs for classic country that came out in 2006 because that's 15 years ago now. You know, hey, here's Jason Aldean, yeah. old school Jason Aldean. I, I can't do like n- 90s to 2000s country. I mean, there's some songs, but like the only guy, the like, country is my favorite genre. But it's mm-hmm. Luke Combs and Chris Stapleton and uh, Tyler Childers and yeah, it, yeah, that's good stuff. That's, yeah, who's new that you like? Yeah, I like all those, but I I always go back to the classic you know that stuff. song "Last Child" by Aerosmith. I was the last child. Next time you hear Beer Never Broke My Heart. So la- I'm convinced that Last Child by Aerosmith and Beer Never Broke My Heart by Luke Combs are the same song. Go just do so it. So now we got I'll some do. homework to yep. go. Yeah. Yep. No, that's a, like the racing thing and the traveling. Some of Dad's fondest that he's told me memories of racing or like traveling on the Bush North series and stuff. So mm-hmm. we, the, whether it's the act, the act of driving and listening to the radio or mm-hmm. the stops along the way like that, we like that part of it. So I was never much of a driver, but I enjoyed the hell out of being on cruise and traveling. Want to thank the Alexander family for their generous time. We basically took a whole afternoon, just sat in the shop and swapped racing stories. That's and dusty race cars were all over the place. That's uh, that's what this is all about. Next time out, we're back in Southern Maine to visit with the young man from Westbrook or Grand National Greg, whatever you call him, Pine Needle Peters. He has a number of nicknames, and he's earned them all. I towbarred this thing to the racetrack, but. Can you explain that for our younger listeners? Yeah. It was a uh, hitch that went on the back of your vehicle, that clamp to the bumper of the vehicle that you were pulling. Now, if you had a good night... You didn't put it on a trailer. No. Didn't have that luxury yet. So your tires, your race tires, are going on the highway. Going on the highway. And if you had a bad night, it was pretty difficult to get it home. (laughs) Greg Peters on the next Open Trailer Podcast. I'm Andy Austin. Have a good one.